Welcome to Overboost 32. Overboost is a podcast interview series featuring discussions with speedrunners about their history in speedrunning and gaming and the runs they're passionate about. I'm your host, PMC Trilogy, and with me today is Musical Daredevil. Uh, Musical Daredevil, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. This is actually my first time ever really doing an interview like this, so should be fun. We'll see how it goes. I'm, you know, that makes me happy to hear because when I started this project, it was focused purely on mecha games, which is a very niche area, but I didn't have a lot of confidence that, because I felt like there were other interview podcasts, uh, but the more I looked at things, the more I felt like there were stor- there were people out there who should be interviewed and weren't getting interviewed. And so to have this opportunity to, you know, to get people down and tell their stories always makes me uh, very, very happy. Uh, I like to start off these interviews with uh, some current events, and one of the ones I wanted to highlight for you was that you will be completing a journey of being the host for Covert Muffin's Warcraft Three yeah. runs. And so I know we're I'm going to ask you, you know, how did you get into hosting? But I wanted to get this specific story up front. How did this start? And like, more specifically, because chances are it probably st- I f- I would imagine it started by chance. When did it become a thing? It so it did very much start by chance, and it did not start with Covert Muffin. So at um, so this this is kind of a long story. I'll, I'll probably cut to the chase. At HEDQ 2018, I requested to host. I believe it was Mr. Lama's Diablo 2 run. Run. I don't remember what class it was. Um, I just remember there was a Diablo 2 run. And there were a couple other runs. I don't know if there was a Vice City. No, that was AGQ 19. Um, these all kind of blur together nowadays. Time has no meeting. But um, so, yeah, AGDQ 2018 it was Saturday morning, and Mr. Llama had a run of Diablo 2. Then there were a couple runs that happened after that. And it just so happened that the sort of block of runs I got put into for my hosting shift included Warcraft 3. And it was not run by Covert Muffin, it was run by Sajiki. But Covert Muffin was commentating it. And I think there was one other run that got slotted between those, maybe two other runs. Um, I'm a bit fuzzy on the runs. But, so I got, I got, I got Warcraft 3. Then, at the subsequent SGDQ... By chance, I got Warcraft 3 a second time as host. Um, I don't know, I can't remember if I requested that. I think I mentioned at the previous GDQ I'd done it, and so they just kind of gave it to me. It's like, hey, you've done Warcraft 3 before, so why don't you do it again? And that time it was by Covert Muffin. Then HGDQ 19 rolls around, and I pass the hosting audition, and I mention, hey, I've done Warcraft 3 twice, I'd like to do it again. And so I get it again. So now I've had Warcraft 3, three GDQs in a row. And each GDQ was a different class in terms of the campaign. There are four campaigns in Warcraft 3. There's Human, Orc, um, Undead, and and Night Elf. And I had done the first three of those, three GDQs in a row. SGDQ 2019 rolls around, and two things happen. The first is Covert Muffin submits the Night Elf campaign, and it doesn't get in. To that GDQ. Unfortunate. The second thing that happens, which is also unfortunate, is that I do not pass the hosting audition. Um, that was not my best audition in hindsight, 
But also, over the past couple of years in particular, the hosting audition has gotten really, really hard to pass. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I actually failed two hosting auditions, and then last GDQ, SGDQ, I finally got back in again. It was very happy. Then this HGDQ, I got back up. Which, um, something they've been doing for, something they did at SGDQ is, first of all, they had a lot more backups than normal because we're online, so things can happen. And second of all, they did actually start giving shifts to backup hosts. Primarily hosts who had never done a shift before. But I figured, okay, if something gets in, I can at least try to favor, garner some favor with Prolix, who is in charge of shifting people, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll get in. Then Night Elf gets in uh-huh. to the marathon. And Cover Muffin and I had been talking about this when Cover Muffin submitted it. And we were going back and forth on Twitter being like, okay, if this gets in, I need to host this. Both, both Covert Muffin and I were in agreement. So I tell Prolix, hey, I know I'm back up, but Covert Muffin and I have been talking and I really need to host this if possible. Then Covert Muffin emails Prolix and it happens. I am in officially as host this AGDQ for the fourth and final campaign of Warcraft 3. Barring anything catastrophic happening, but I am I am there in the schedule. My name is right there. Awesome. That's that's you know it's good to hear too that that there's sort of that that flexibility and angling and whatnot, and, and all for you know for for a good cause in the end. You know, it makes for a yeah. fun narrative of you know you two having the opportunity to do this stuff together, and uh, yeah. you know and, and to go from there. Of course, everyone loves Warcraft Three, right? I mean, Warcraft Three was the yes. last Warcraft game I played, so. Uh, but no, that's really that's neat. I'm I'll be looking forward to that. I know that's definitely on on my radar for for runs to check out. Actually, I guess I should make an overboost uh, show note right now. Uh, I think the next, well, okay, so this is not the next one. I think there will be a regular overboost next week. But uh, in the week before AGDQ, I am working on a special panel preview episode where me and three other nice. former guests will do power rankings. Uh, and I, I imagine I'll be going to bat for for Warcraft three among others, but we'll we'll see. That's the, that's details that are still being worked out, but that should be fun. Uh, let's go back in time. Where does gaming start for you? So this this was a fun rabbit hole I went down over the summer. Actually, um, it it kind of crossed my mind once where I was trying to think to myself, what is the first video game I ever played? Like, ever, ever played. Um, Which came about by something else I was doing on Twitter. But, so I'm racking my brain going back to, like, all the video games I played. And I suddenly realize, while I was going down a completely different Wikipedia rabbit hole, actually, that the first video game I ever played was a game my dad had on his work laptop when I was, like, three or four years old. And it was called The Playroom. And it's it's very much like a game that three- or four-year-old kids play. There's, like, a few things you can click on in this room. And a few things you can click on go to activities with, like, the alphabet and with, like, audio recordings that play and make animal noises and all that stuff. And I actually went down that rabbit hole via the third video game I ever played, I think. I'm probably fuzzy on the details. But um, it was published by the same company that also published Myst. Okay. And so you kind of get that vibe a bit where there's like in mist you can like go to a screen and there's things you can click on and do 
This game was much cartoonier. It was not realistic, obviously, because it's a kid's game. But it's kind of got a similar vibe to Myst. Then after the playroom, um, for like a while, I didn't really play very many games. Then I went to my cousin's house, I think, and I played a game called Descent. Which is a game where you're in a spaceship and you fly around in like into your minds and you're shooting robots and trying to essentially clear out a virus that's infected all the robots in this mine. And it's a it's a very interesting game because it's got like six degrees of freedom yeah, you can fly around in. Freedom shooter, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the first ones. Um and I played that game. I convinced my parents to buy it for me, played it all the time, got obsessed with it, and never made it past level seven. But that was like ten years old at the time. So have you happens. ever gone back to, to finish it? I haven't. Okay. I have thought about it. Okay. From time to time. I do actually have a joystick with me, so I could if I wanted to. I also have a controller. I wonder how Descent would play on a controller, now that I think about it. Interesting. Uh, but it has crossed my mind time to time. Maybe I should go back and actually finish this game that, like, 8- or 10-year-old me never could. That comes up more often than not on this program. The, yeah. Especially, because so, I feel like some people speedrun as sort of vengeance on, yeah. <laughs> on games they couldn't beat as a kid. And I, I don't think Descent is a very speedrunnable game. It's extremely linear because, mm-hmm. like, they very much gateway your progress behind keys and doors and stuff. There might be a way to clip out of bounds. Who knows? It is a game from, like, the 90s. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not aware of any speedrunning of Descent. Where do we go from there, then? What's, uh... So, we're, it sounds like we're mostly on PC in, in your childhood. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Very much on PC. My cousins did have an NES, and I did play that. They had Mario and Double Dragon. But, of course, that was at my cousin's house, and I never got a console until way, way later. But the, I believe the third game I ever played was Myst. Mm-hmm. And Myst has an interesting story to it, because I, I played that also at, a, at the same cousin's house and also at a friend's house. And then I convinced my parents to buy that, too. And I also bought it with the strategy guide, the nice big Prima strategy guide that I'm sure many people who are watching this stream remember from their childhoods. And that, cu- that guide was kind of interesting because they wrote it from a first-person narrative. And so it was more like a story, and I actually read that in bed a couple times. It was kind of nice. Then at the end, they kind of had the strict walkthrough of, go here, do this, click on this, set it to this. And I'm reading through this once, and playing through Mist, and I suddenly realize, wait a second. All I need to do to finish Mist is know where the final puzzle is, how to solve it, and how to get the item you need when you get there. And if I do that, I can skip like 90% of this game. So I try it, and I beat Mist in like five minutes. And I'm like, ooh, that's cool. I wonder if I can do this faster. Now, at the time, I had never heard of speedrunning. Mm-hmm. I did not know that this was a thing. But here I was, finding a major skip in a game, and then trying to do it faster. And it was fun. And when would you have been doing this? This Because you're, you're, you're describing this, you're still probably pretty young, right? So this is like... Yeah. About, this is I'm like, like 10 or 12 years old yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So, now, okay. again, I yeah, never heard going. of speedrunning at that point. Mm-hmm. Um... So I didn't really start my speedrunning journey until much, much later, mm-hmm. but it was kind of a little bit of foreshadowing to sure, what I do sure. now. 
Well, okay, so let's let's keep going. Now, uh, one of the questions I like to ask in terms of uh, getting a sense of someone's history with gaming is identifying a turning point when you really took ownership of the hobby. Uh, and this could be one of several things. This could be, you know, you just saved up money and bought something like a console or computer. Uh, you got a job and then used that money to get a console computer. You moved out on your own, et cetera, you know. Would you identify, would be able to identify a turning point like that where you're like, you know, this isn't just, this isn't something that my parents buy for me at like a Christmas or a birthday or, or other holidays. You know, this is, now this is mine. This is what I do. Yeah. So I think there were really two turning points that really got me into like gaming as a hobby. Um, the first was a thing my parents did buy for me, but it was very much for me. It was a birthday present way, way back in like the early 2000s where they bought a whole PC for me for gaming. And so I was like, this is cool. And so I started installing like games on it that I'd played up until that point and never really had to. Um, I don't think Descent was one of them, but one of them was Morrowind, uh-huh. which is my main game I speedrun now. Um, there were a few other games on there. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head what they were. I think one of them was The Sims. Another one was SimCity 3000. So stuff like that. The second turning point was around that same time. I think, yeah, around that same time. Or maybe a bit earlier. Where, so the N64 comes out and becomes a thing. And I had played some games on that at my cousin's house. Although more like watched my cousins play those same games. And they looked pretty cool. Especially Ocarina of Time. Um, And I think GoldenEye was at someone else's house. But stuff like that. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get an N64. Now, at the time, a thing I had gotten as birthday presents was gift cards to Toys R Us. I'm sure all of us 90s kids remember Toys R Us. Sadly, it no longer exists nowadays. But back then it did, and they had gaming consoles. It was a great place to get gaming stuff, because it was often pe- yeah. it was like the last place that people would go. Like I remember when PS2 was new, I would always get PS2 accessories there, because they were sold out other places. Right. No one would think to go to Toys R Us to get their gaming stuff. You'd be going to like Best Buy, Circuit City, um, CompUSA, Circuit all City. those stores. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I don't think I've actually bought anything at Circuit City, but there was one very close to my house anyway. Um, but to get back to the story, so I've been getting gift certificates for like birthdays, holidays, stuff like that. And these are like smaller $20 gift certificates. But I wanted that N64, so I saved up for like a year or two. All those gift certificates I'd been getting. And then finally, I had saved up enough, I think it was like $125 or something, of gift certificates that I finally bought that N64. It was a big moment for me. No, that's that's a, that's a good one. Especially amassing that from gift certificates, too. That's... Yeah. <laughs> Very, very powerful. Um, well, here's another question. Then you know, so we got we got some turning points here in terms of the computer, the N64. Uh, another thing I like to ask, because we're this is focused on speedrunning, or at least you have been identified on under the pretext of speedrunning or invited on. Uh, the it means we are usually not talking about multiplayer games, and so one of the right. things I do like to ask is, uh, you know, especially in the past two decades, you know, we've we've grown up through a lot of different periods of multiplayer gaming, whether that's like N64 couch co-op, 
you know, early days of online dedicated servers, matchmaking stuff, MMOs. Uh, have you been into any of that? Have you had any big phases with those kinds of games? So I did have a couple of big phases. Uh, one was Perfect Dark for the N64. Uh, I did play that with friends a couple times, actually, a few times. My parents got concerned about my grades in school because I was gaming so much. Uh, I'm sure that's a very familiar story to many of you. I, I see you're smiling there. That may be familiar to you, too. You it know, was familiar I, to me. I was I was kind of a teacher's pet. I want to be honest. Like I was. Oh, I was the infuri- the, the insufferable person who would have perfect grades but also be gaming too much and so like my my parent was like well you should do other things sometimes but also your grades are perfect i have no leverage here what do i do Uh, (laughs) see my grades were not perfect so my parents were not very happy with me and they were somewhat restrictive with when they let me have friends over um thanks parents but anyway uh so i did have friends over from time to time and we played perfect dark multiplayer um, I suddenly realized I was not very good at it because I've been playing the single-player campaign on Easy a lot, and Easy does not prepare you for playing with friends very well. But I had fun. They were my friends mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And also we were, like, preteens and stuff. And, yeah, things happened there. Anyway, um, we had fun. Then the second um, multiplayer experience I had was Diablo 2. Mm which is not an MMO. It's basically you play through Diablo 2 cooperatively with, like, up from two to eight people. So, like, that was my... That was probably my bigger multiplayer experience because I played a lot of Diablo 2 online multiplayer. And I got pretty far with it. I got... I played on, like, Normal and Nightmare. Never made it to hell. Um, Did lots and lots of bail runs back in my day. All right, very specific Diablo 2 question then, because I also played a lot of Diablo 2. Uh, did you have any particular... So one of the things I remember that I would do was because I was just focused on working through the quests. I wasn't into the meta. I didn't you know, trade Stones of Jordan or anything. I just yeah. wanted to you know, get my way through the game. Uh, and so I would often make... Uh, make servers, I guess is what you would say, because you know you could make kind of a room for other people to join your game yeah. on Battle.net. Uh, did you end up joining rooms or making rooms? If you made rooms, how did you name them? Do you remember? I think my recollection is it was about a 50-50 mix of both. Okay. I would both join and make rooms. Because joining rooms for bail runs, um, like that's easy. You know exactly mm-hmm. what everyone's going to be doing. So I'm like, all right, you're doing a bail run. I'll join up with you. And then we do the bail run. It's like, all right, on to the next one. Let's defeat bail again. And those were fun ways of leveling up in Act 5 and all that. Then I think I would start my own rooms, too, just to play through the game cooperatively. Mm-hmm. So that was cool, too. It was like a even-ish mix. That's yeah. that's my recollection. No, that's a, that's a, extremely fair. That's uh, I, I, I mean that's the way to do it. You know, that's kind of you, yeah. if you want. Sometimes some of those quests you would never find other people doing. You know, and, and so right. you'd have to make your own anyway. Um, well, okay, going forward from there, so that stuff that you described, that's pretty much in you know that's, that's like two thousands era sort of yeah. early two thousands era stuff. Um, going forward from there, was there any? big changes in gaming i mean this so this is a question i haven't asked in a while but did you have any period of time maybe uh if you know if you're involved in college stuff or undergraduate where you stepped away from gaming for a period of time so i did absolutely have a period like that and it was fairly recently too so it started um in college around my sophomore year where 
I had to stop gaming. So I went to college to study architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who may be wondering, yes, I am indeed an architect. Now we can talk about that later. Uh, but architecture studio, they don't, they don't just call it school or like whatever, or degree or whatever. They call it studio. Architecture studio is extremely busy because the projects you work on are fairly sophisticated and architecture is hard. It is very hard. So it involves a lot of late nights, a lot of extra work staying in studio. And I came to realize I just really didn't have time to play games enjoyably because it was taking away from studio or all those gen eds I had to leave until the last night because I was doing architecture and partying and all that stuff. Anyway, um, so I kind of had to stop gaming. And it's also sad because at that same time, I kind of had to stop music too. Mm. I just didn't have time to do those yeah. things. I I tried to keep up with piano and violin. Um, I did do that for my freshman year, and then sophomore year, I had to give that up. It was kind of sad, because both those things had been pretty impactful in my life. But here I was in college, I'm on to architecture now, and that's what I'm doing. Then I graduate college, and I start my career. And I'm, of course, in the midst of trying to figure out what having a career and a work-life balance is like. And I do start playing video games a little bit again. I do play some Morrowind, um, and I do play a few others on Steam. I think like Half-Life and other things like that. Games that had come out a long time before, nothing really that new. But I wasn't getting a ton of enjoyment out of it just for some reason. Then, so a few years come by, it's like I'm a... I'm like a year to my career, and suddenly that passion just starts coming back. I'd sort of figured out what having work-life balance is like. I'd started getting into things. So I, I start playing games again, like for real, you know, not just like a thing I was doing. And that was also around the same time I start getting into speedrunning. Um, which, which again, we can we can go into. Well, but, I mean, that might be the perfect yeah. opportunity yeah. now. If, if that's a part of, I mean, if that's a part of how you got back into gaming, you know, post college, then how did you first learn about speedrunning? Then I first learned about speedrunning. So it was around this time, interestingly, where I kind of stopped gaming for myself. So I think it was maybe two thousand six, two thousand seven. I'm a bit fuzzy on the year. Mm-hmm. You can you can go look this up fairly easily uh, because this is this, I'm going to date this very much. <laughs> Someone on a private forum sends me a link to a tool-assisted speedrun of Super Mario 64. Oh, Mario 64. Okay, so this is yeah. not the famous Mario 3 tasks, right? Is it? This is not. Okay, this is not the famous Mario 3 tasks. Um, but it's Super Mario 64, and they get to the final Bowser using, I think it was maybe 30 stars. Then not very long after that, they get to the final Bowser with just one star when they discover how to clip through that door to get to the second Bowser. And they still have to do, um, not Dire Dire Docks, but that other water level. Maybe it was Dire Dire. No, it wasn't. Anyway, um, they still have to get that one star so they can move the wall back to where Bowser in the Fire Sea is. Mm-hmm. Then they get zero stars. And that I was like, this is awesome. So I fall down the tool-assisted speedrun rabbit hole. Then 2011, I'm still in college, the Japan earthquake hits and tsunami. And someone on that same forum links me to an event going on. They say, hey, this organization is, raising, is doing a fundraiser for Japan. It's called Japan Relief Done Quick. 
I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's not to assisted speed running. It's real time. That's actually kind of awesome that they can do that. So I go and I watch this marathon. And they were playing a bunch of games I wasn't super into. It was a lot of retro games that were in that marathon. Yeah. But I'm like, all right, this Gamestone Quick organization, they sound kind of interesting. And I find out they do more than just Japan Relief done quick. They do bigger events twice a year, too. So I start watching that. And I think it was um, a couple years after that, around 2013-ish, when I start watching some of their older videos. And someone back in 2011 at AGDQ did a run of Morrowind. Now, as I've been subtly hinting here throughout my whole history, Morrowind is one of my favorite games of all time. I love playing Morrowind, and I love playing Morrowind Fast, too. I have kept up with it for a long time. But I see them playing Morrowind Fast and beating it in five minutes. And I'm like, (laughs) this is kind of awesome, and it's real time. I can do this. So I get on Speed Demos Archive, and I take a look at the Morrowind threads and at the actual uh, Morrowind submission. I look at this, I'm like, huh, maybe I can do this. And so a couple years later, this was, again, um, like around the time of getting into my career, I think 2015-ish, mm-hmm. maybe. Maybe it's 2014. Time doesn't matter anymore. Um, where I start doing my own speed runs. And my first run is on YouTube. I finished my first run in 6 minutes, 44 seconds. Um, my time is less than half that nowadays. Uh, but yeah, that was my first run and how I got into it. That's interesting that you know, it's... What is interesting to me, surveying the guests that I've had on Overboost, is the extent to which sort of that that original spark. Like sometimes that game, sometimes people avoid that because they're afraid it'll ruin you know the game for them, or you know they end up deciding it's not really for them. But to see you not only uh, follow through on you know what's a game that you've liked for so long, but now you know come back around to uh, you know to is is. Or stick with it, because you know. Again, too, I you know, I, I looked at your speedrun.com profile. You have pretty fresh PBs in you know yeah. both any percent and uh, all main quest, which I know you've been you working on a lot as well. Um, so that's that's really neat. Now, uh, let's let's see here. So usually, one of the things I like to do is I like to do a few a few takes about your your catalog of speedrun stuff, and I I think I know the answer here. Usually, this one's pretty easy. Of all the games that you have uh, done runs of, what is your favorite speedrun? This is an easy question. Morrowind is my favorite speedrun, and it is any percent. Mm-hmm. And now, the flip side of that, is there is there a least favorite? And again, this isn't like you think it's a bad game or a bad community or something. It's just that you tried it, and it didn't really work out for you. Yeah, it's so I would say my least favorite speedrun is Diablo 2 Sorceress. Mm. Because the thing about Diablo 2 Sorceress is that the like the good runners make it look so easy. They make it look like, "All right, I can do this." But Diablo 2 is a very difficult run because Diablo 2 is an RPG. And as you can imagine when you're speedrunning an RPG, when you get to the end, you are very underleveled. Because you're trying to go fast and leveling up takes time. So you are essentially you essentially have to level up as little as possible or take as much as little time as possible leveling up. And there is a gate at the end of Diablo 2. I believe you have to be level 20 to get to the very final boss. Mm-hmm. But you are very underleveled in most areas. 
And the third act of Diablo 2 in particular is very challenging. You have these very tiny enemies called um, flayers. And you also get several variations of flayers. And these enemies are extremely fast, they, um, both in terms of attacking as well as how quickly they move. And what makes it worse is you get huge swarms of them in this act. So you can be attacked by easily 20 of these very tiny enemies. And you can get insta-killed very quickly. And the thing about Act 3 is that it is a very, very big and long act. So it is possible you can get very far into Act 3. You get insta-killed by the swarm of like 10 or 20 of these flares. Then... You have to go all the way back because, again, finding waypoints and checkpoints takes time. And then on the way there, you get killed by another group you missed because you're going fast. And so you can encounter what I call hitting the wall. And this happens to me all the time, even in Druids, which I can do fairly successfully. But with Sorceress, it gets harder because you teleport around. So you, you are teleporting around... You suddenly run out of mana, you panic, be like, oh crap, I have to hit the potion button. You don't hit it in time, you get insta-killed. And then you get caught in this loop, and you hit the wall, and that's the end of your run. I tried doing some runs of Sorceress, and I have never made it past Act 3. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, I have played Diablo 2 myself, and uh, I, I, from a casual perspective, the jungle is a nightmare. And Yes, it is. So, you know, that only makes sense that it's like that for uh, <laughs> for speedrunning as, yes. as well. Uh, how about a game that you would like to speedrun, but you just haven't gotten around to it yet? So I do very much have a game that is next on my wish list of games to learn to run. The catch is this game has been next on my list of games to run for like two years now, and I have learned other games in the meantime, so funny how that works. But, um, so, and it's not just one game either, it's a collection of games. But the thing I would like to learn next is something called Elder Scrolls Anthology Percent. Ah, where you, okay. Yeah, where you do any percent runs of Arena, Daggerfall, Morrowind, Oblivion, Skyrim. All five games. It takes about two and a half-ish hours, I think. Mm -hmm. Maybe world record has gone down. But yeah, that means I have to learn four games to do that. And I'm thinking the first game I would learn in terms of branching beyond Morrowind is Skyrim. That makes so sense. that is that is specifically the next game on my list. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I used to be, uh, well, I still am, but uh, a big fan of Puri Puri, who I think was one of the yeah. first people to do uh, Elder Scrolls Anthology runs. Uh, great streamer. He's he's out there in the pirate waves now. <laughs> so not on Twitch anymore, but uh, no, I, I've seen, it's 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 fun. The, the, all the Elder Scrolls runs are, are very interesting runs. So uh, They sure are. That is, is very cool. All right. Um, well, let's. This is a good. This is a good detour to ask a thing I like to ask because we're all we're all getting old and the world isn't getting any healthier. <laughs> when it comes to things like uh, you know taking care of your hands, your wrists. I know you also do music as well, so this and this might also matter in that capacity as well. Uh, do you have any particular thoughts or approaches to health, whether that be with your wrist, hands, or things to do with sitting a lot? You know. Um, things to do with sitting a lot. Well, I so I don't take the best care of my health. Um, I will admit I don't do anything super actively. 
take care of my health other than obviously COVID precautions like mm-hmm, hand sanitizer, sure. um, not leave my house except to buy groceries or get curbside and all that. But that's not quite what the question's about. So yeah, I I don't really do much in terms of active prevention. I guess the main thing I do is to really listen to what my body is telling me. Like if I'm moving around on my mouse and suddenly I start to feel like a pain in, a pain I get sometimes is like at the top of my hand, I will shift my mouse around to make sure that my arm is more straightened, other things like that. If I start to feel like any sort of pain because I'm slouching, I will stop doing that. Um, a bad habit. I do very much miss the ergonomic chair I have in my office at work, but it's not safe to go there at the moment, so yeah. this is the one I got. I'm lucky I have a fairly nice chair. Um, I have not had any problems with this chair. I do make sure I sit up kind of straight, and if I catch myself slouching, I make sure I adjust. You may catch me adjusting throughout this podcast. Um, and then also make sure you stay hydrated. Drink water. Of course. It's getting colder, at least here in the United States. Um, it's drier. Drink water. Stay hydrated. I drank some water before this. Oh, that's good. That's a that's a good way to be. All right, now let's let's segue. So we we talked about speedrunning and how you got into speedrunning and what you've been speedrunning. Uh, but I know in that universe, in this corner of the universe of speedrunning, you've also been involved with um, what I would call organizing work, which is always work that I like to highlight on these podcasts because you might not really see it. You know, certainly for you, it, you're heard because you do some. You've done hosting work, as you know we discussed at the very top of it. Uh, but I also know you do tech stuff as well. Uh, what's the story of you getting involved with hosting and tech for GDQ? Yeah, so 2014, I moved to Washington, D.C., and it was March of 2014. So I live, I don't live, I didn't live in D.C. proper at the time. I lived in a suburb. But um, that GDQ, the next GDQ, like, 10 months later, moves to the hotel next to Dulles. Mm. And that hotel was a 35-ish minute drive away from my house. And also an hour drive away from my work, including traffic, which there is a lot. That's why it takes an hour. Without traffic, it was also 35 minutes. But so essentially, I was very much available to go to GDQ the entire week. I was there for setup. I was there for, like, volunteering shifts after work. I was there for teardown. So it was very easy for me to get super involved with GDQ because I was a local. And I'd also been watching GDQ for quite a while at this point. So I'm like, you know what? This hosting thing and donation reading thing sounds kind of cool. I'm going to try that. And I'm also, I also see they want people to process donations, which sounds kind of cool. And also they want stream tech people. So I'll sign up for those and see what happens. So... HGDQ 15 rolls around, and I send in my audition, which at the time was basically, all right, you have like one to two minutes, make up five donations, and ad-lib whatever you want for the rest of the time. So I send that in, and I get in. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So HGDQ 15 proper comes, and I get my first ever hosting shift. And it was Morrowind, of course, run by Forest Moth. Um, who at the time was going by a different name. Mm-hmm. So I get that. Um, I also get Silent Hill run by UFO Techie, as well as um, Spatterhouse run by Zallard and Spatterhouse Wampaku Graffiti run by a runner whose name I'm blanking on. It's a strong uh, site there. Yeah. That was interesting because I essentially went to work 
that hosting shift was a 3 a.m. hosting shift, and then I had work the day after, so that was a very interesting day at work. Wow. But hosting was so much fun that I went for it. Mm-hmm. Then that evening was a day off. So that same GDQ, I also had my first ever donations shift, um, filtering donations and t- sending them to Bob T. Goldfish, who was hosting. And my first ever stream tech shift was on that Saturday afternoon, um, where I had, um, I think, either Perfect Dark or Goldeneye was part of that. And also a very good-looking um, German shooter game, which na- the name I'm, bl- is, I'm on is blanking. Um, plus a Diddy Kong racing race, which was interesting, so I got to yell like the countdown to all the runners. Um, <laughs> and then... That that was also interesting because um, I was supposed to be there for four hours, but the person after me no-showed. So I actually got a double, like, eight-hour stream wow. tech shift on the Saturday, which was, like, my first ever stream tech shift. And there was no training or anything like that. I just had to go with what I knew about OBS at the time and just say, all right, I guess this works. Um, UA had to bail me out a couple times because things didn't quite work. Mm. Um but so that that was the start of my path onto volunteering for GDQs, and I've been doing it ever since. Yeah, so you've been doing it pretty pretty consistently then, because I I know from personal experience, I think I think I first became I want to say I first became aware of you probably at GDQX twenty nineteen because I think maybe our, our our mutual friend Casey Frew was like that's musical Daredevil, you know, yeah, like oh probably. yeah. Uh, and maybe I maybe I had seen something that like you were you were affiliated with Gamer Symphony Orchestra or something like that. Uh, but, but no, you've been doing it pretty consistently. That I mean, obviously you mentioned earlier in the context of the 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 Warcraft story, the top, you know, the the arc with hosting. But the tech stuff you've also kept with, yeah. And of course, um, so, you you will be tech for 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 me at AGDQ to twenty twenty one. Yes, yes. I will I will be tech for your shift. Okay. Um, I I will be there. So I will actually be there at eleven a.m., mm-hmm. which is. Around the time, I don't know if it is the time, but it is around the time we will be pressing the button to go live. So either myself or whoever is before me, I can't remember who it is off the top of my head, will be pressing that button, which is awesome. Nice. And yeah, I'll That's be there button. up until you just cause three run, unless I screw up royally and that thing gets ends up getting delayed until after 5 p.m. Eastern. But I think we know what we're doing now, so that shouldn't happen. I, you know, I, I, I have to make a confession from from SGDQ because I don't know. I never looked up what happened in the first day to put the schedule behind, and I'm not asking for anyone to confess to it. But I, I will say that I think me, me and KZ Fru then spent like the next several days rooting for the schedule to get further delayed <laughs> so that we didn't have to do Miami Vice at 4 a.m. But oh, so were we. <laughs> But, you know, but I don't know. Folks did a great job. Things got back closer to schedule. And, you know, yes. Miami Vice was still a ton of fun. So it was fine. Yeah, it was. And I think by that point, the schedule had been mostly caught up. Mostly so caught up. Yeah, yeah. Been, yeah. But yeah, it was just like this was our first big online marathon. We'd done smaller ones before. Sure. We'd done um, like we'd done uh, COVID relief done quick, as well as I think the first frame fatales was done virtually. Yeah. We'd also done Harvey Relief Done Quick, but this yep. was our first really big one where mm-hmm. we had 24-7 stuff going from around the world. Yeah. And so we had a lot of new tech issues that we didn't quite know how to solve yet. 
And we also didn't quite know what precautions we needed to give to the stream checkers in order to make sure they knew how to look for things. Mm -hmm. So we had to fix a lot of stuff on the fly, and setup blocks took a lot longer because we were trying to resolve issues while the stream was still live. And that was really the main cause. It was also sort of cumulative. Like, some streams, you know, set maybe took a few minutes longer, some of them took a lot longer than that. Yeah. But that, that was really just what happened. It was, we were new to doing a big GDQ entirely virtual. And so by the time we got to later in the week, we knew what issues to anticipate. And we were able to tell all the stream checkers, hey, this will probably happen. Here's how you fix it. Hey, watch out for this thing. And even if issues did make it past the stream checkers, we were able to resolve them a lot faster to the point where not only did the schedule catch up, but we actually ended up getting ahead of schedule at some points during the second half of the week. Yeah, ex- it, there's no substitute for experience sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's, that's just how it how it be. Well, let's talk about experience then. Uh, one thing that I want to... Uh, well, actually, no. You, I think, have brought this up because I want to give you a chance to talk about how speedrunning has tied into your day job because I felt like you had a story <laughs> to tell there. So go ahead and spin me spin me that tale. Yeah. So my day job, as I mentioned, it is I am an architect. I am licensed, fully licensed in the state of Virginia. And so that is what I do for my day job, eight hours a day. And one thing my firm does is they have what's called a design technology department. And that department is responsible for things for rolling out new software, assisting people with new software, doing minor troubleshooting for people who may be having issues with that software, giving people access to things, stuff like that. And me being a speedrunner, I'm always interested in finding new ways to do things faster. And for a business, that is something they value quite greatly. And I use the word value here for a specific reason, Mm -hmm. as anyone who has been part of a company can attest to. You have probably heard that word way too many times, as I have. And so I'm finding new ways to do things that are kind of faster with the software we have. And people kind of notice that. So I'm also interested in new software, but that's not quite relevant to speedrunning. I'll just outright say it. I'm interested in new software, especially if it makes things faster mm-hmm. and easier. Um, but people start noticing that. And so they start like asking me questions about, hey, is there a quick way to do this thing? Is there a quick way to do that thing? And then I can tell them the route, I guess for the, pr- the appropriate term for how to do their construction documents faster yeah, yeah, or their design drawings for the client faster. Sometimes I have to tell them, no, sorry, that's the fastest way I know, which is kind of disappointing because usually that way is extremely annoying. But yeah, coworkers have asked me for routing faster CAD drawings. Are they asking in those terms at that point? I no. Mean, okay, okay. All right. This is a speedrun podcast. So I'm using speedrun terms. No. They, they say, is there a faster way? What is the fastest way to do this thing? <laughs> Maybe I should tell them to use the word routing. I, I mean, don't know if get this it, is this is like me, me and me in the car with with my wife when I start referring to traffic lights as cycles. <laughs> you know, she's like, "What the hell are you talking about?" But no, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I just it just happens sometimes. Um, well, let's talk about other fun things. So, I, so I, you know, we've talked about your history of gaming, speedrunning, work you've done with speedrunning. But I know when it comes to doing organizing work in gaming things, it's not just speedrunning. 
uh, video game covers and arrangements are something that are near and dear to my heart because I used to do stuff like that uh, in my college years. And I know for you, I don't know if you did anything like that in your college years, but certainly I think since you've moved to D.C., you have become involved with the, uh, let me see if I do this right, the Washington Metropolitan Gamer Symphony Orchestra. Yes. Excellent. Uh, how did it's you get also in- here on my shirt. There you go. How did you get involved with them, and what do you do with them? So, um, yeah, I, I didn't really do much with video game covers in college because I was busy with architecture stuff. But um, so 2015, um, after I moved to D.C., my first ever AGDQ, I was working with a couple setup volunteers. And I don't know if it's the same setup volunteers who are still involved with my orchestra and say they've been to GDQs before, because there are actually a couple of people in my orchestra who have been to GDQs, notably AGDQ 19. But one of the, I mentioned to one of them I play violin, and they're like, hey, there's this gamer's symphony orchestra in the area who's looking for violinists. And I'm like, well, that sounds kind of cool. But as I mentioned at that time, I was kind of trying to figure out how having a career and work-life balance works, so I didn't do it at the time. Um, also, I was fairly rusty at violin by that point, hadn't played it in like five years, so... <clears throat> Excuse me. So, I kind of left that on the shelf. Then, late 2018, I was browsing on Reddit, and someone has a post saying, Hey, there's this gamer's symphony orchestra who is having an open house rehearsal in September of 2018. And I'm like, you know what? I know what having a work-life balance is like. I got time now. Maybe I can try de-rusting violin. Yes, I did use that term in my head. De-rusting violin and maybe join this open house rehearsal because they're allowing anyone in. So I did. I signed up for it. Got completely blindsided by one of the pieces mm. that they gave us. Um, it's In case there's anyone from WMGSO in chat, it was Preservation Planet- from Planetary Annihilation, which is a very, very cool sounding piece. I am glad the orchestra did it, but... The violin part is extremely challenging because it is straight up 16th notes, like almost the entire time. And for me, who had not played violin in a decade, that was kind of hard. But I tried it. It's an open house rehearsal. I don't have to care too much. So I went to the open house rehearsal as part of the violinists and had a blast with the other pieces, which I believe were Luigi's Mansion. Uh, we played that. We played an arrangement of a piece from Fez for orchestra, which was kind of cool. Disaster piece is so good. Yes. And I'm blanking on what the fourth piece we did. Oh, it was a... You'll you'll like this, PMC. Mm-hmm. It was um, a medley of the ending credits pieces from Mario games, but done in the style of a John Philip Sousa march. <laughs> It was cool. It was called John Philip Sousa Saves the Orchestra. Um, And it was actually a full orchestra piece. It wasn't Mm. just for band. Um, So yeah, violins and your marching band. Why not? There you go. Right? Why not? Why not? Violins and your marching band. (laughs) I I think the cellos and basses might have a hard time, but violins, I think we can march. We can march. Yeah, why not? You know, figure it it out. Get a well, get well, electric. Just have someone carry the bottom yeah. of the cello in front of you. You know, <laughs> to we'll we'll put it off to the side. Yeah. We'll we'll have one cello's bow up up and down, and if, then I guess another person. If we can make it thing. work with sousaphones or shoulder mounted <laughs> horns, then we can figure out something for strings. All yeah. right, don't don't give me this. Uh, <laughs> a viola sized cello. I down tune the strings. I don't know right? how good that would work. Yeah, well, so, we'll that sounds weird. 
we'll, we'll think about it. Down tune the viola. And and so uh. you know, since since doing that stuff, you know, since you know, uh, playing in the open house, you've also done some arranging work as well, right? Yes. So, um, I I passed the audition for the choir. Um, bit, bit of interesting story there, but to sort of get to the question there, so I passed the audition for the choir, mm-hmm. and I I had done some composition for video games, and it was video games I did for game jams specifically. So. Um, I did see that the orchestra did their own arrangements. So when I passed my audition in my like acceptance email saying, hey, that's cool, I can join the orchestra now in the choir. Join the orchestra in the choir. Interesting sentence there. But um, So I'm like, I am very excited to be in the choir and also maybe do some arranging. And so our ensemble manager at the time was actually forwarded that email to the head of like arranger resources who helps out new arrangers. Mm-hmm. And so... The arranger resources manager reaches out to me and says, hey, I see you're interested in arranging. Why don't you join our email list? Um, And so I'm like, sure, maybe I'll arrange at some point. So I did get started with that. And my first arrangement was a string quartet. And it's, uh, it's essentially like a few iconic video game pieces. And the reason why is because we'd actually gotten some requests for people to be like, hey, why don't you use some more like Mario, Zelda, Sonic... Um, all that stuff. So yeah. I did like this uh, super simple string quartet of just like pieces from those kinds of games, just classics. Since at the time I'd done composition for like a whole bunch of different instruments, uh, not just string quartets, but I'm like, I'm just a baby arranger and people actually have to play this thing. So I'll start with something I know, which right. is strings because I'm a violin player. Then after that, I do another string quartet arrangement, which was Rogue Encampment from Diablo 2. Which was a lot of fun because Rogue Encampment has very is very like electric guitar heavy. Yeah, yeah. So I got to try various things to try and make the violin sound like electric guitar, which involves things like playing the bow sideways, so you get kind of a raspy sort mm-hmm. of sound to it. Um, there's one point where the second violin and cello actually play behind the bridge to get a, a very even raspier sound, which is cool. Um, there's there's other kinds of things like that where. Like, normally when you try and have the viola play four different notes, they kind of just move with the bow this way to kind of get, like, a really fast chord there, and I have them go the other way, which is unusual. But that's how the guitar played it, so why not? Why not? Yeah. No, I mean, let's go for the sound, right? You're doing it for a reason. Exactly. Then, around that same time, I'm like, all right, I got a full, or- I got a whole orchestra here. And composition was something I've been playing around for a while. And... Like, even before I did video game stuff, I'd been playing around with it in middle school, trying to do full orchestra stuff. So I'm like, why don't I learn how to do full orchestra stuff for real? So I spent, like, a good year actually learning orchestration. I, I read um, the, the seminal work, which is the Handbook for Orchestration by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who wrote Flight of the Bumblebee. Mm-hmm. There was another book I read. Um, I watched a lot of YouTube videos. There's some really awesome YouTube series out there on how to do full orchestra stuff. Um, one of them is called Orchestration Online, interestingly enough. And by the time I get to fall of last year, fall of 2019, I'm like, all right, I'm ready to do full orchestra stuff now. And I'm sitting in a meeting for the HEDQ pre-show. And one joke we've had at the HEDQ um, in, in the GDQ pre-show meetings is, let's do a musical. Now, of course, we can't really do that very easily because of copyright and DMCA and other things like that. Um, And also, it would be a ton of work. 
So we decided to do a joke about it for that GDQ of like, why don't we try to do a musical, but can't because of copyright. And if you watch the AGDQ pre-show, you'll, uh, AGQ 19 pre-show, you'll see that happens twice. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that happens during the pre-show is Kung Fu Fruit Cup is starting to do like an inspirational speech about a like full orchestra or like a musicals type thing where she's about to burst into song. And if you listen very carefully, it's kind of quiet because we didn't balance the audio correctly. Mm-hmm. You'll hear a big orchestra swell. Uh-huh. And Jay Hobbs asked me to do that right after I got to the point where I thought I was ready. So awesome timing on that. <laughs> Uh, that's so funny. That's I uh, yeah. yeah. I have to go back and look look for those sorts of details. Then, oh, man, this is neat. I feel like we got in a real real interesting cross section because you, you I was looking for a way to do it, but then you did the work for me, which was to tie tie it back to uh, to speed running, and and there you go, right right back <laughs> to your work as a, as a part of GDQ. Um, let me. I want to I want to throw out a general take question here for you because I feel like you probably have a a nice answer to this when it comes to speed running continuing to do runs whether that's ones you've already done or in this case you talked about moving on to other elder scrolls runs do you feel like you have a particular mission statement when it comes to speed running uh that you know you, you're you're doing it with a particular goal in mind or for a particular reason i wouldn't really say i have a mission statement in particular like no no real statement. Mm-hmm. I I get into various speedruns for different reasons. One one reason I do like to speedrun games is I like breaking the game, video games apart. Mm-hmm. Like I watch I like watching really crazy glitches. I like doing really cl- crazy glitches just making the game do just ridiculous stuff. And I like that in general. I like watching like tons of video game glitch type videos on YouTube. Um I don't in particular just watch speedrun glitches. I watch all kinds of crazy glitches. Um, funny things of like games messing up in hilarious ways like that is my bread and butter in terms of rabbit holes I fall down, fall down on YouTube so oh, there's no mission statement I do just really like glitches mm-hmm. so it's certainly sort of, not, sort of part of the appeal to you yeah not all games I speedrun are super glitch or exploit heavy um, I do Ocarina of Time Randomizer which is it has strats to it but for randomizer, at least they don't do glitches in there. In fact, they are forbidden by the rule set in tournaments and other things mm. like that. But for the most part, that is why I do things like Morrowind, Vice City. Um, actually, Diablo Two actually has no glitches, as far as I can tell. It's all routing. Mm, yeah. But I just well, like Diablo Two, so. That's fair. No, Diablo Two. Diablo Two. Yeah, I recently I replayed Diablo One like a year ago, and I've been thinking about like I'll get around to Diablo Two someday for sure. It's def- just I have so much nostalgia for that game. But it's fun. You should do it. <laughs> you did just mention a game that I did want to ask you about. So usually I like to pick a few games uh, to you know sort of understand how you got into those specific games. And now at this point, Morrowind is so interwoven with your story that we've really gone over a lot of the points of Morrowind. You mentioned a little bit of your thoughts about Diablo 2. I did want to also ask, how did you end up speedrunning Vice City? Was this a, a favorite childhood game that you came back to? Or was this just something you picked up you know, when you started speedrunning because it's a cool speedrun? So it was a childhood favorite I came back to. Okay. I, I loved Vice City, um, but my parents would not let me get it. Or at least I... No, it wasn't that my parents wouldn't let me get it. It was that I assumed ahead of time I would never convince my parents to be mm-hmm. able to let me get it. So I played it at a friend's house a couple times, and I had a lot of fun with that game. 
Um, also had a lot of fun with GTA 3. Then eventually, once I started getting my own money and I had my own gaming computer, I got Vice City because my parents would never know. So then I could play it myself, and I had a lot of fun with that. And yeah, I think that was one of the games I uh, installed on that game on that gaming PC later on, and then kept up with back when I started playing games again when I had a job. Mm-hmm. But uh, I watched HDQ15, and there was a Vice City. I think it was either I think it was any percent run at AJQ15. And that was back in the cone crazy days when you had to grind cone crazy to get enough cash to do the rest of the run and buy all the assets. And you did have to buy assets. But I was like, you know what? I used to be pretty decent at Vice City. Maybe I can do this too. Now, I didn't get around to Vice City until a year or two later. But I started looking into running Vice City. And so I started watching like some tutorial videos, like looking at the documentation. I'm watching some runs to see how it works. Then just as I was starting to get into it, duping was found. And I'm like, okay, I'm only starting to learn this run. I'm just going to wait a little bit for everything to settle down, and then I'll learn it later. Because duping was a huge find in Vice City. It completely changed everything. And also, duping is still kind of hard. So I'm like, all right, eventually I'll get back around to learning this thing. And I don't remember when it was, but I think maybe 2017-ish was when I finally started doing Vice City runs. And so you focused pretty much just on... Because I forget when SSU happened, but I imagine you've pretty much stuck to the base category, which was any yes. percent now, no SSU. Yeah, it's. I think SSU was found a year or two later. Okay. And I did try to do SSU runs... And while I am good enough to complete um, no SSU runs, I am not. Go- I was not good enough to complete SSU runs, and so I got super frustrated with it and just didn't do it because why would I do something that frustrates me as much as SSU does? Yeah, no, so, that's, that's that makes sense. That follows. That's pretty. Yeah, that's a pretty standard one. Uh, all right, let's. Also, it's pretty RNG heavy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. It turns out when you're just sort of hoping to pick a memory value out of there, or yeah. effectively, uh, you know, where you have a a few chances, things things can happen. All right, let's start winding things down a little bit. One of the things that I like to do is to get a question from my previous guest for my next guest to create a little connective tissue between the interviews. Uh, now, my previous guest was a Retro Brando, uh, who initially asked a very specific question and then left me an out in, in case this question does not produce any sort of response. He, he himself admitted this was too specific. Um, so the specific question is, would you ever be willing to speedrun Young Indiana Jones for the Sega Genesis? <laughs> Um, well, that's a yes or no question, and my answer is no. So yeah, that's I, I think he would he would agree with that. <laughs> but the the broader and probably more interesting out here is, uh, do you have any favorite movie licensed games, and would you speedrun any of them? Movie licensed games. I don't really think I have a favorite movie licensed game in particular. Um. Yeah. Okay. No, no I mean, that, I don't think I've actually played any. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny thinking about because you know Brando specializes, I think, in that 16-bit era 
Uh, for me, like when I think uh, movie licensed games, you know, I'm more likely to think of the the PS2 era in which they were still around. Although at that point, I think the they generally had the reputation <laughs> of being bad. Um, although now at this point, I have I have a speedrun in my repertoire, which of course is the the diehard Nakatomi Plaza speedrun. Yes, um, you know that that I do. Uh, but no, that's that's fair. It's it's weird to think about these trends about you know the, the movie license stuff. Uh, but anyway. This does mean that I do need from you a question for my next guest. Uh, doesn't have to be limited to speedrunning and gaming. Can be anything. The person answering it will be a speedrunner, but I'm not going to tell you who they are before you right. give me the question. Um. So I guess the first thing that pops into my head, because uh, we have talked about music quite a bit, and we've talked about video games a lot, is do you have a particular uh, video game piece, like a piece of music from a video game that really gets you every time emotionally, like gets you super happy, gets you super sad, gets you super excited, gets you super pumped. Just do you have like, is there a piece of video game music that gets you like, gets, gets a real response from you? All right, so yeah. Do you have a particular piece of video game music that really gets a response from you every time you listen yes. to it? All right, so now I will I will let you let you know. Uh, <laughs> you you also I guess I should note that Daredevil here was very very gracious in allowing me to impose on his time uh, with a very short turnaround. Uh, and so your question will be going uh, to this person who you have to thank for this situation. Ooh. Uh, so hopefully that'll be a good interview, and hopefully that that guest will have a, a good answer for that question. Uh, do you have any future games uh, that you are excited to play that are coming out in in the near future? So yesterday, a game called City Skylines was free on the Epic Game Store, and I don't think it's I don't think it's free anymore. They may have moved to another yeah, game. Yeah, they're changing but... every day because like yesterday was Oddworld. It was two days ago, I think, was City Skylines, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yesterday was Oddworld. Um, But as an architect, I got very into city-building games. Like, I had SimCity 3000. I played that for a while. Then EA kind of took a turn, and SimCity 4 and 5 just did not do it for me. I I did not like those. But then this other developer comes along and sort of says, hey, we know what makes city games fun. So I've, I've watched a lot of city skylines and like as an architect, I'm still very much into city mm-hmm. type games and I'm excited to play that. I'm hoping to actually make it a stream game at some point in the next few weeks, depending on how busy I get with other things. That's interesting. Do you, so I know nothing about city management games. I am, I am a, a warlike gremlin who seeks only to destroy, which is why I play games yeah. like Just Cause and Teardown. So am I sometimes. Uh, yeah, no, fair. Time to build and time to destroy. Do yep. you feel like, uh, you know, if, if, let's say I'm out here trying to give a sales pitch for Musical Daredevil streaming City Skylines. Is there something in about your particular background that you're going to be able to bring to those streams? I'm just curious because I don't know City Sim games at all. Right. Um, I mean, I guess you could just say that you know I am a I am a licensed architect, and mm-hmm. I'll be playing a city management game. Okay, no, that's that's um, fair. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if there's like a particular hook because you know also too being someone who 
isn't involved architecture or urban planning or any of that, you know, those things, those things probably tie together somehow. <laughs> probably. Yep. I'm just, you know, since probably. I haven't done it myself, I don't know how. Now, I, I have not played City Skylines, and I also haven't mm-hmm. quite figured out how I want to tie those two things together, because there's really two directions. I could either try and make this the best, most idealistic urban planned city ever, but that's boring, so maybe <laughs> I will do the opposite of that. So, yeah. Can you can you make a city that's worse planned than Washington, D.C.? That's the challenge. Exactly. And then even more challenge, <laughs> game the system so that it works. <laughs> that might be what I do. Mm-hmm. There you go. There you go. That's the that's the content pitch. Uh, all right. Here's a new, fresh wind down question. I've been seeking to add a new question to my wind down list, and I feel like this is this is a one the go to. Uh, who should people know more about in the community? If you could, if you could press a button to send more people to someone, who would that be? Uh, let's see. Well, I could plug Washington Metropolitan Gamers Symphony Orchestra. We do have a Twitch and we have a YouTube where there's music on there. Um, let's see. In terms of the speedrunning community, who could who could get more people? Because, like, so many people I know are, like, big-time mm-hmm. streamers. Um, and so they've got a lot of love already. Um... So it's yeah. This, this is a tough question in terms of who I think could get some more love. Um, I guess off the top of my head, so there is um, a fe- a fellow GDQ host named Iggy Zig, mm-hmm. who also actually helps out Scent with some prizes stuff, and Iggy Zig regularly streams Twitch Sings. Which unfortunately is going away come January first, yeah. and it has already started going away. So I'm not quite sure what exactly Iggy is going to do. Um, but Iggy Zig is a pretty decent singer. I do pop by Iggy's stream sometimes if I don't happen to be streaming at the same time, which happens a lot. Um, and sometimes after my streams, I'll raid Iggy. But yeah, in terms of someone in the community uh, who could use some extra love, I would say Iggy Zig. No, good, good answer. Now, for you, where should people? be finding you what should they be looking for yes um so my twitch channel is musical daredevil it does have the underscore there is my twitter which does not have the underscore and does not have the final i um character limits on on twitter sadly i also have my own youtube page which does not have the underscore i think it is all one word it might might be two words Mm -hmm. i don't remember Branding is important unless the platforms don't allow you yeah, to brand, right? which is extremely unfortunate on my part. I put that underscore in my name specifically so it would work everywhere, and then people come along and say, no underscores, not working. Um, my Twitter name does have the underscore, though. It is proper. It follows musical Daredevil brand standards, but my handle on Twitter does not. Um, so yeah, Twitch, YouTube, Twitter are the main places you'll find me active. Um, if you find me on Instagram, congrats. I only really have that, so no one else takes it. <laughs> uh, that's a very good answer. And of course, if you are uh, you know, watching this on YouTube or listening to this on Spotify, iTunes after the fact, uh, you will be able to find links uh, to all of those in case, you, in case you weren't able to follow some of the yes. Twitter-enforced deviations from the brand standards. Uh, you'll be able to find the links, click through to those, uh, and you know, en- enjoy, enjoy the content. Uh, Musical Daredevil. Thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you for having me. I do need one more thing from you, though, which mm-hmm. is 
In order to properly conclude an episode of Overboost, I'm going to use a cheesy catchphrase. For example, let's boost on out of here. And then when I say that, I need you to give me your best rocket engine noise. All right. Okay. Gotta, gotta get ready. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. Let's boost on out of here. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Excellent. Uh, all right. If there is anyone here who has a question uh, for for Mr. Musical Daredevil, uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. Otherwise, I'm probably just going to throw throw us at KZ Fru. Um, but yeah, again, thank, uh, thanks again. This is going to probably go up on you know YouTube and everything by Monday. Uh, if there is any you know issues, let me know. But uh, otherwise, I think that went really well. I had a lot of fun. I had fun too. Oh, and Diego, my dog is barking. Us. <laughs> dog also had fun. Thank Pet you. interruption. Thank you, Diego. Uh, all right. Well, let me go ahead and throw that out. Um, yeah, I'll just do that. I think I saw that boy go online. But cool. Yeah. No, this is very, very glad. You know, and again, I, I knew this would be fun to do. So, you know, I appreciate you making the time on such uh, uh, a short turnaround. Yeah, you caught me at an all right time. That's kind of the thing. I feel like in in the pandemic, everyone's either like very very bored or like suddenly very busy. Oh no, wait, wait, yeah. Fru, did you have a question? When oh, no, a, a fretzel, I I canceled the raid. Uh, fretzel, I wanted a fretzel question. A fretzel was one of my co-conspirators in our video game <laughs> cover band days. Fretzel. And so, oh no, wait, okay, yeah, here we go. Are there any other music gaming communities that you've had good experiences with online or at least before twenty twenty in person? Yes, so there is one. So the Washington Metropolitan Gamer Symphony Orchestra is actually not the only or gaming symphony orchestra I have joined. There is actually another one, the Virtual Video Game Orchestra. Um, so that one is basically a bunch of people who were, le- who were like, hey, let's start an orchestra online. This one started because of the pandemic. And... So they have essentially started their own online gamer symphony orchestra. They have many members all over the world, including WMGSO, other GSOs like University of Maryland, Baltimore, Montclair, um, all of the ones that use at the University of California, and a whole bunch of other ones. Mm-hmm. So I've had good experiences there. And actually later today, I will be recording violin parts for two of their projects, as well as video for one of their choral parts. So... Yeah, that's that's my plans for the day. Then a couple other choirs I've joined temporarily. One is um, a choir out of the UK called Sing Out Strong, because they did a virtual choir of Baba Yetu from Civilization. And so that was a lot of fun. Um, I participated in that. Then this January, I will be doing another choir out of the UK who will be doing Sonio di Volare, which is from Civilization, also by Christopher Tin. So yeah, cool. lots of nice virtual yeah. ensembles out there. I mean, thank. I mean, 
as much as sometimes the internet's a problem, sometimes it is also very cool. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we got that. I was I was expecting a Fretzel question, so there yeah. we, <laughs> we we got it in. Uh, fretzel. Fretzel. Yeah. Don't you Fretzel me? I'll Fretzel you. Uh, hashtag ban Fretzel. Hashtag.